It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey there, welcome to the tent. I'm your host, Scott Feldman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, one of the things I enjoy the most in the aquarium hobby is studying the ecology of the natural habitats of our fishes. I found over the years that you could find out so much about the fish by understanding a little bit about where it comes from. When it comes to kerosens, there's few more widely known and loved in the hobby than the neon tetra, Paracaridon inessi. But a little fish that we all know and love has been sort of the gateway drug for generations of tropical fish hobbyists, providing this colorful, exotic look into nature's, you know, creations. Of course, there's other members of that genus Paracaridon, including the uh, beloved Cardinal Tetra. And then there's the uh, diminutive, yet equally alluring, Paracaridon simulans, the green neon tetra. Now, this fish tops out around three quarters of an inch, or about two centimeters in length, so it's pretty small, and it's certainly deserving of that label of nano fish. And you can keep these guys in nice aggregations, and I wouldn't necessarily call them schools, because as our friend Ivan McColgy beautifully observes, in an aquarium, pea simulans seems to be all over the place, each one going wherever it pleases and turning greener than when they're in the wild. And it's true, they don't hold a true school or shoal in the sense that other fishes do. They sort of kind of aggregate. It's interesting to watch. This cool fish is my favorite, probably, of what I call the little petite tetras, little guys like ruby tetras and stuff. Uh, they hail from the remote regions in the upper Rio Negro and the Orinoco regions of Brazil and Colombia, and it's a real showstopper. According to ichthyologist Jacques Gary, the type locality of this fish is the Rio Jufares, a small tributary of the Rio Negro in Amazonas state. One of the other cool highlights of this fish is that it's found exclusively in blackwater habitats, which I think, of course, is pretty cool. <clears throat> Excuse me. Specifically, they're known to occur in habitats called palm swamps, which are locally known as campos in the middle Rio Negro. These are pretty cool shallow water environments. Interestingly, P. simulans doesn't migrate out of these shallow water habitats, also called woody herbaceous campinas by aquatic ecologists, like the neon tetra does. It stays in these little habitats for its entire lifespan. These compo habitats are essentially large depressions in the earth which don't drain easily because of the elevated water table and the presence of a soil structure created by our fave soil, the hydromorphic podzol. Hydromorphic, just so you know, refers to a soil having characteristics that are developed when there's an excess of water around it all the time or part of the time. So if you really wanna get hardcore in recreating this habitat, you'd use immersion tolerant terrestrial plants like Spathathanthus, boy, did I tongue twist on that one, Unilateralis, Everardia montana, Scleria microcarpa, and small patches of shrubs, shrubs such as uh, Micaria viscosa, Tokaka species, and Macrosomnia symbiofoliae, and grasses like Trachophyte pogon. Really confusing names, but worth looking at. And then, of course, our fave palm, Mauritia flexiosa, and its common companion, Bactris campesteris, round out the native vegetation. Now, the big question is, can you find any of these damn plants in, in your local uh, you know, nursery or whatever? Perhaps, 
more likely you could find substitutes or analogs. Just Google that shit. You're going to learn tons about these plants and, the, and similar plants that could do the job. Now, these habitats are typically choked with roots and plant parts, and the bottom is covered with leaves. So this is kind of right up our alley, isn't it? It is. Of course, if you really want to be a baller and replicate the natural habitat of these fishes as accurately as possible, it helps to have some information to go on. So here's some cool environmental parameters that I found from these compo habitats based on a couple of studies I found of this particular species, in fact. Now, dissolved oxygen is not something we usually measure, but scientists love to. And the dissolved oxygen uh, levels in their habitats were about 2.1 milligrams per liter. And the pH is where it's interesting, ranges from 4.7 to 4.3. The KH values are typically less than 20 milligrams a liter, and the GH is generally less than 10 milligrams per liter. Conductivity is pretty low. The water depth in these habitats, based on one study I encountered, ranged from as shallow as 6 inches, which is about 15 centimeters, to about 27 inches, 67 centimeters, on the deeper side. The average depth in the study was about 15 inches or 38 centimeters. And this is pretty cool for us hobbyists, right? I mean, we can utilize all sorts of aquariums and accurately recreate the actual depth of the habitats which P. simulans comes from. Now, as aquarists, we often hear that this species needs fairly high water temperatures, and the field studies I found for this fish confirm it. Average daily minimum water temperature of Paracaridon simulans habitats in the middle Rio Negro was about 79.7 degrees Fahrenheit, which is about 26.5 Celsius, between the months of September and February. It's the end of the rainy season, and that's part of the dry season. The average daily maximum water temperature during the same period averaged about 81 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 27.7 degrees centigrade. Now, temperatures as low, and I say low, as 76 degrees, which is about 24.6 degrees centigrade, and as high as 95 degrees Fahrenheit, it's about 35.2 degrees Celsius, were tolerated by, you know, this fish with no mortality noted by the researchers. So it's actually fairly adaptable. But the interesting thing is the, the low is not all that low. Uh, 76 is... You know, on the cooler side of many what many tropical aquariums would be run at, but it's certainly not outrageously low. It's definitely not room temperature. So, bottom line, you purists keep the temperature between 79 to 81 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's like what 26 to 27 or so degrees centigrade. Now, research have postulated that a thermal tolerance to higher water temperatures may have developed in this fish in these shallow compos. Be it became its only, and they became its only real aquatic habitat as a result. So that's kind of cool. So the fish doesn't migrate like some of the other fishes do to different habitats. It stays in that one area. And as far as diet is concerned, the fish preys on that beloved catch-all, a phrase of microcrustaceans and insect larvae. It's its exclusive diet. Specifically, small aquatic annelids, such as the larva of Chironomidae, which is, hey, that's the bloodworm, which are also found among the substratum, the leaves, and the branches. And of course, organic detritus, which is something that they also will nibble on as well. And we know this because we've seen it in our own aquariums. Now, if you're wondering what would be good foods to represent the fish's natural diet, you can't go wrong with stuff like Daphnia and other little copepods. Small stuff makes the most sense because of the small size of the fish and its mouth parts. I mean, it's tiny. What do you feed a three quarter of an inch fish? It's something very small. This fish would be a great candidate for that so-called urban agapo aquarium, which we've been playing with, in which rich soil, reminiscent of those podzols found in its habitat, is in use along with terrestrial vegetation. You can do pretty accurate representations of the habitat utilizing the techniques and substrates that we've talked about and simply foregoing the wet, dry seasonal cycles in your management of the system. Um, we've done a lot on this urban agapo concept. Just Google it or look on our, uh, our podcast and blog for episodes where we've talked about this. 
There's a lot of possibilities here. Now, one of the most enjoyable and effective approaches I've taken to keeping this fish was a leaf litter only system, which I've written about pretty extensively and talked about here on this podcast. Not only did it provide many of the characteristics of the wild habitat, like you know, leaves, warm water temperatures, minimal water movement, fairly low pH, and you know, the soft acidic water that we're, that we're talking about, um, but it created an invigorating physical environment for the fish. As you may recall, I utilized that particular setup as a sort of a test bed for my internal food production theory, not adding any supplemental food to the tank, and the little uh, simulons simply thrive. They were active, colorful, and fat, which is a big stretch for a little fish. And there were two distinct spawning events in this tank during the time that it was set up. It's pretty cool. I was so stoked by this environment, I'm actually preparing for a second run at replicating the natural habitat, but this time I'm taking a different approach. I'm using using a different type of substrate uh, and more of a root tangle approach using melastoma roots and the stuff called Borneo root, which um, I'm still trying to get the exact species of from our supplier, but it's an interesting root. It puts in a lot of tannins into the water, makes it deep and dark. I'm really looking forward to seeing if there are any behavioral differences with a more densely packed hardscape configuration as opposed to the completely open no-scape where, that the leaf litter version offered. Now, the pH is something that we'll have to think about and experiment with if we really want to go as accurately as possible with this fish in the long run. Now, that being said, of course, they could adapt, like many fish, to slightly higher pHs. And I know a few hobbyists who have ventured into that sub-5 range with pH, so it's a real interesting challenge and an approach not for the faint of heart. It can be done. It simply requires a greater understanding of water chemistry and the techniques and the materials designed to get you there. This is currently the realm of super experienced, highly experienced, uh, mental, you know, hobbyists who are perhaps trying to unlock the secrets of these very demanding uh, species and others like Ultima Angels and so forth, which are known to come from and thrive at these levels below pH 5.0. And to achieve and maintain these pH levels, we're learning about the careful administration of acids and the, you know, the application of other exotic and kind of scary sounding techniques. It's different stuff. And the management of low pH systems with the additional benefit of humic substances provided by the botanicals is a real frontier in the hobby. Even in the greater context of the blackwater aquarium world, it's seen as such. And it can be challenging, but it's not the frightening sideshow that it once was. I mean, it sounds a bit scary. What exactly is the challenge here, besides getting the water to your desired lower pH? Well, understanding water quality management in a way in which denitrification occurs in such systems is, you know, is challenging. A different class of organisms called archaeans is commonly thought to manage the nitrogen cycle in, you know, very low pH water. We've talked about them before in our podcast. Google it or look it up. Uh, on the surface, it seems really scary and daunting, but I can't help believe that like so many things in the aquarium hobby, it's more of a function of the fact that we haven't done much with this in the past and we simply don't have a path to follow just yet. We need to understand a different class of organisms which run the cycle in this environment and how to manage them. Fortunately, there's an alternative. I do know that Culture, a recently introduced purple non-sulfur bacteria inoculant, which is a colony of Rhodosuminonis palustris, which is a really interesting bacteria, highly adaptable, is perfect for the management of the nitrogen cycle in low pH aquariums. In fact, it even competes with archaeans in this environment. They're real extremophiles, which can help with part of the equation here. Now, pushing the limits a bit, trying different techniques enriched by our understanding of the wild habitats of our fishes. This is cool stuff. Helping the hobby advance. Isn't this like delicious? I think it's great. This is one of the reasons why I had a near obsession and still do with attempting to recreate to some extent as many of the physical and environmental characteristics of the wild habitats of our fishes as possible. 
All the while realizing that although they will be residing, you know, in a closed system with many, you know, physical chemical characteristics that are similar to what they've evolved to live under, it's not a perfect recreation. Much the way I might want it to be. And, you know, being of the opinion that replicating some of these characteristics is likely better than replicating none of them, I think it's still doing a good thing. It's an arrogant assumption on my part, I suppose. I mean, like every one of you, I'm fully responsible for the animals which I keep, and I take a certain degree of pride in that. I do want the best for them. That being said, I'm personally not in the mindset of having to be absolutely hardcore and being 100% accurate biotopically in terms of making sure that every leaf, every twig, every botanical is from the specific habitat of the fishes where I keep. I do respect aquarists who, you know, believe in that stuff and play with it. Good for them. Um, but that's not me. Rather, I place emphasis on providing a reasonably realistic, functionally aesthetic representation of the habitat from where my fishes come from with the aquascaping materials, layout, and environmental parameters configured to match as closely as possible the parameters in the wild. It's not a perfect science. It's a challenge sometimes, too. A big challenge. And a fun one. From such a little fish in this case. But the rewards are so many for those who meet the challenge. And I hope you do. I hope you take a look at some of your favorite fishes and learn a little bit more about their environment, not just what the books say. Go into some scholarly articles, do some exploring. There's a lot out there. Stay resourceful, stay creative, stay studious, stay inspired, stay diligent, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Bellman from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin. Thank you.